Father God, we believe you are provident, you have providential control over all things. And so, Lord, you know how much I wrestled with this sermon. You know how much I wrestled with what to say, how to say it, um, how not to say it. And so, Lord, I'm going to go right ahead and preach it because I think you have it for us. And so I thank you for the volunteers who are inside, who are helping. I thank you for the worship team who blew out their vocal cords and played, you know, six guitars that Caleb found in his, in his classroom. And we just thank you for, uh, for today. Thank you that you are a good, good father. As we celebrate this Father's Day, let us remember that first and foremost. That there anything good that we see in our own fathers is because we have a good father. And we're made in his image. So we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Speak through your word. Amen. So 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 14 to 19. That's all we're going to finish today. Listen, uh, the ESV, which is the, the, the translation we normally use here, the ESV translates this as a worker approved by God. That's their subtitle here. And the reason they do that is because in verse 15, it says to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed. And so they take that verse and they say, this is the point here, this is the point of the passage. And so the passage is answering a question, and the question is what Victor led us into a few weeks ago when he went through the first 13 verses of 2 Timothy chapter 2. And this is the question. We hear you. The question is, what makes one gospel worker approved as opposed to ashamed? That's the question. The question of this passage is what makes one gospel worker approved instead of ashamed? Okay? By the way, if you're a tween, we said that we were going to you know, reward you guys for taking notes. So you're here anyway. This is a great time to take notes. Okay? Just so you know. So Paul has just finished telling Timothy to raise up the next generation of leaders who are going to raise up the next generation of leaders who are going to keep pushing the gospel forward. Obviously that happened because here we are today, 2,000 years later, the gospel is still going forward. Jesus promised, I will build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Okay, And so the question is this, as we wrestle through this idea of I want to be an approved gospel worker, I want to be someone that God is going to use to, to accomplish his purposes, someone that can be entrusted, which it says in verse 2, with the gospel, what does it take? What does it take to be an approved worker? Do I need to have a seminary education? Do I need to be exceptional at teaching, preaching, communicating? Do I have to have a sweet, nifty travel sound system like Caleb? Do I need to be a bookworm? As many guys in our circle would say, you know, reading a lot of the dead guys. Right? These, these church fathers and Puritans and these sorts of things. Do you need to be in tune with the spiritual realm? As I know there's people even in our church who are hyper aware of what the spirit is doing in a way that I envy. What if you're none of those things? Can you be an approved worker? I want to be an approved worker. I don't want to be ashamed when I stand before the Lord. And I imagine if you're here today and if you're a follower of Christ, there's a chance, hopefully, that you desire the same thing. You don't want to be ashamed before the Lord. You want to be approved before the Lord, not in your salvation, right? That's by grace alone, faith alone, through what Christ did. But you want to be approved in the fact that you want God to use you in this life. So this passage really explains the competency that is needed to be an approved worker. So verse 14 says this. Paul says, Remind them of these things and charge them before God 
not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. So we see a couple commands here and in the following verses. So the first command we see here, in our English at least, is keep reminding people of these things. Keep reminding people of these things. Well, okay, so Paul, well, what, like, well, what things? If I'm supposed to remind them of these things, what things? And if you look at the preceding verses, Paul has just given us a trustworthy saying. And the summary of that trustworthy saying is that we need to, per to preserve the gospel and we need to persevere in the gospel and we need to avoid the terrible consequences of rejecting or neglecting the gospel, which are essentially, which is hell separation from God. And so Paul has just warned us to make sure that we cling to the gospel, that we don't step away from the gospel, but that we, we make it our all in all. And so essentially what Paul is saying here is remind people of the gospel. Remind them of gospel centrality, gospel focus, because the gospel is our only hope in life and death. Our hope in life and death is the gospel because it will makes us belong to God. And our only hope in life and death is that I'm not my own, but I belong to God. But how is that accomplished? It's accomplished through the gospel. It's not accomplished through religion. It's not accomplished because you were born into a Christian family or a Jewish family or whatever family. It's accomplished through the gospel of Jesus Christ to save sinners. Okay? There's another parallel passage in Titus, one of the other pastoral epistles, where Paul introduces a parallel trustworthy saying, a little bit less poetic, a little bit easier to wrap our brain around. That's in Titus chapter 3, beginning in verse 3. And this is what Paul says there. This is his trustworthy saying. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient. We were led astray. We were slaves to various passions and pleasures. We were passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of our God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of our works done by us in righteousness, but according to his mercy. That's God giving us what we don't that's God not giving us what we do deserve by the washing of regeneration, by the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, this gift, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That's Paul's very succinct summary of the gospel in Titus chapter 3. And he says this is a trustworthy saying. And here now, in, in Timothy, Paul says again, remember these things. Remember the trustworthy saying. Keep reminding people about the gospel that's essentially Paul's first command. His second command is this, and charge them before God. Right? So there's a sense of seriousness with that. Charge them before God. Charge them before God not to quarrel about words. In the Greek, this is actually one command. It would read something like, keep on reminding by solemnly charging. Right? So that's the essence of what Paul is trying to say. He's saying you need to remind them by charging them from this solemn perspective, because it's before God, you need to charge them not to quarrel about words. You see, the idea is that Paul is encouraging Timothy to remind his people of gospel centrality by warning them of the predictable, hear me now, don't zone out because there's a bird over there, so squirrel, okay? 
He's warning them. He's saying, focus on the gospel, and I'm going to tell you that the sidetracks, the potholes, the pitfalls, the exit ramps, the flashing billboards, they always remain the same. And they're the things that distract you, the things that pull your eyes from the author and perfecter of your faith and have you focus on lesser things. And so he writes the same thing to Timothy that he also wrote to Titus, by the way, warning of much of the same thing. And of all the things he could warn, you know what he warns? He says this, quarreling about words and how they are destructive towards you and they're destructive towards the church. Now, whatever they were fighting about, we can make some educated guesses, but we don't know completely, clearly what they were fighting about. But whatever it was, they were engaging in empty, purposeless, speculative disputes about nuance, definition of terms, vernacular, which might be fitting for the university, but serves no real purpose in furthering the goal which Paul has just finished telling us is getting the gospel to the next generation and beyond. Are you following me? This is why he says these word quarrels only ruin. That's a strong word. They ruin their hearers. They ruin. In other words, if I'm arguing with Mortimer and you guys are listening to me, with every ounce as I'm fighting with him and he's fighting with me and we're getting uglier and uglier and uglier and you, the flock of God, are watching, do you know what the enemy is doing in that process? He's distancing your heart from me and distancing your heart from the gospel because now you see your shepherd arguing about trash. That's what Paul's talking about. And we all have seen that. Mostly we've seen it on Twitter. But we've all seen it in our lives with people around us. It's like the dad who reams out the coach at the five-year-old soccer game. And you're kind of like, bro, the only one who looks like an idiot is you. Not your four-year-old kid. It's you. Quarrels ruin their hearers. He says they promise life They promise progress, but they deliver ruin. And he's going to unpack that in a moment. So then he continues in verse 15. He says, do your best. It is like the holy opposite. He says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. A worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Now, you have to follow me here. This is going to get a little complicated. Okay? Modern scholarship has shown that the King James translation of this verse was wrong. Okay? But it existed for so many hundreds of years that its interpretation infected almost all of our scholarship. Okay? I'm going to read you the King James version. Let me read this version again, and then I'm going to read the King James again. And the reason this matters is because the King James almost suggests to do what the false teachers were doing. Look how the enemy works, okay? Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. The King James reads this, study to show yourself approved unto God, 
a workman that needs not need that needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Okay, you say I don't really know if I understand the difference. The King James is saying this: study hard, so that you know how to interpret the Bible as you face your opponents. That's basically what the King James would be summarized as. The problem is that it's not the word study at all. It's the word be zealous. Be zealous. And so it's not study to show yourself approved. It's actually be zealous to present yourself to God as one who is approved, a worker who's not ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Let me keep going with this because you're going to see why it matters. Study over being zealous leads you to a misunderstanding of the second half of the verse. Study over being zealous gives this misunderstanding that what Timothy should be doing is spending his time in the library poring over ancient manuscripts and books so that he knows how to interpret the Bible. In other words, study influences the way you, you interpret personally rightly handled. You understand what I'm saying? Are you following me or are you totally lost? You're lost? Okay. He's saying the King James says study so that you can rightly handle the word. The word study in your brain changes the way you interpret rightly handle. So you think rightly handle means study. It sounds like good advice, and I'm not saying it's bad advice, but it's not what Paul is saying here. What Paul is saying is this. Be zealous to present yourself to God as an approved worker, which is someone who rightly handles the word of truth. And the reason that King James defied it, defied, the, uh, interpreted that and translated it as rightly dividing is because as we have it as rightly handling, in the Greek, it's cut straight. Cut straight. It's a, it's a tradesman's term. In other words, this is a term Paul uses in tent making when he's cutting the canvas so that he can cut a straight line. It's the word that a carpenter uses when he's measuring and cutting so that something is plumb, so that something is straight as a builder, so that this is a level process. So Paul is saying this. He's saying you need to cut that in a straight line so that when you sew it together, you're not ashamed because the tent falls over and it looks like, you know, your, your kid made it instead of you, a professional. And so he's saying you need to cut it straight. He says, cut straight the word of truth. And so the real question is this. What is the word of truth? Be zealous to cut straight the word of truth. And here, scholars are in almost complete unanimous agreement in the year 2023 that the word of truth, after analyzing Paul's writing style and his other writings, is that the word of truth does not refer to the scriptures as the King James assumes, but the word of truth refers to the gospel. And so in other words, what Paul is saying is this, be zealous to cut straight the gospel. Be zealous to clearly communicate, clearly articulate, clearly present the gospel in a straight way so that you are not ashamed when you stand before God. That's what he's saying. Paul is not urging a correct interpretation of Scripture, which is obviously important. Okay, I'm not saying that it's not important. But what he is urging is to truly teach 
and preach the gospel. And so the implied question is, well, why does that matter? It matters because while the false teachers were distracting from the gospel by debating about nuance and word quarrels, Timothy instead is commanded not to enter into the fight. Instead, he's commanded to clearly explain and unpack the gospel in a straightforward way. Do you see the difference now? It's massively different. It's massively different. He continues, verse 16, but avoid irreverent babble for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus who have swerved from the truth saying that the resurrection has already happened. Well, what's the problem with their words? Well, we don't know too much, but we do know that it's irreverent babble or the NIV translates it as godless chatter. It's worthless talk that doesn't build people up to become more like Jesus. It says here, will lead into more and more. This is actually a word play in the Greek because the Greek word is it will not, it, it will advance. And the idea of advance is it's thinking, if I'm advancing, it means that I'm making progress. But what Paul says is this, he says, you're going to advance, yes, you're going to advance into ungodliness. And so in other words, the false teachers are saying, if you understood these things, you would be advancing in your faith. And Paul, who's just so tongue-in-cheek, says, oh yeah, you're going to advance all right into ruin. That's where you're going to advance. If you listen to them, you're going to advance right off a cliff. That's where you're going to advance. And so the point is, the promises they make, they make the promise, if you just understood this, if you understood the secret things. It's like those YouTube videos you see. You know, the guy with the big beard, and he's like, well, you don't understand about Genesis. If you just understood this, then you finally, no. You know what you need to understand? The gospel. That's what you need to understand. And other things can so easily deviate into word quarrels. And the result is this. Their talk spreads like gangrene. I know some of you guys are, you know, Civil War reenacting soldiers or whatever, surgeons, right? Some of you guys are nurses. Some of you guys have Wikipedia. Okay, gangrene, for those of you who don't know, gangrene is when a localized part of the body becomes, they get an obstruction of blood, and then that part of the body starts to die and starts to decompose while it's still connected to the body. Now, the Bible is beautiful. Let me unpack this for you. Think about this. The Bible says clearly that blood is synonymous with life, and the life is in the blood. That's why the Hebrew people were not allowed to eat food that had blood in it. If you stop the blood flow, then you kill part of the body, and gangrene sets in. The New Testament makes it clear that the gospel is connected to the blood of Jesus, and that the gospel is life. And if you choke out the flow of the gospel in the body, guess what happens? Gangrene sets in and it starts to rot in its place. And so if we are the body, which is what the scripture says, and the gospel flow gets choked out to all of you guys over there, sorry, on the two sets of steps, eventually what happens is their faith starts to rot and decompose. And then we as a body have a problem because our hand is rotting right on our body. And he says it's just going to spread. Like buying a bag of apples and at the bottom there's one that's rotten and then you got to throw half of them out. It just is going to spread and spread and spread. 
And he says, that's the danger. These false teachers' debates and their babbling about words was cutting off the flow of the gospel from the body. For those of you who grew up in churches and that, who, that you hated, and now you say, I want nothing to do with Jesus because you should have seen the church I grew up in. Your church was beset with gangrene, and no one ever dealt with it, and they deviated from the gospel, and they quarreled about carpets and words, and now you're wondering why you hate church. You're blaming God. You don't hate God. You hate church. And you hate church because your church was infected with decay. Do you understand what I'm saying? That's the problem. And he's saying you need to get on target. And the target is the gospel. That's where you need to set your eyes. That's where you need to feast. That's where you need to drink deeply from the well. You go back and back and back and back and back to the gospel because the gospel is life. And if you choke out the gospel, the body starts to decompose. What were they focusing on here? He says, the saying that the resurrection already happened, which sounds similar to what was happening in uh, the book of Thessalonians, right? But the, uh, the closest thing that we would have in this day and age to an overemphasized resurrection would be kingdom now theology, which might mean nothing to some of you. It might mean a lot to some of you. Kingdom now theology is theology that overemphasizes the future by saying the future is now. And so then it's like, if I break my leg, well, all I got to do is remember that I'm a kingdom person and in the name of Jesus, I command that leg to go back to normal. And it's this overemphasized power where we forget that we are made perfect through suffering and, and the Holy Spirit becomes a parlor trick. Now, can God heal? Absolutely God can heal. But God is not a genie where you rub the lamp and you say the magic words in Jesus' name and then you get what you want. That would be a modern version of an overemphasized resurrection, or an, we would say theologically an overemphasized eschatology, okay? Where you're thinking, no, that's an already, not yet. If you emphasize the not yet and say that it's now, 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 then you're emphasizing the wrong thing because the power becomes the focus instead of what? The gospel. And the Holy Spirit becomes a parlor trick instead of becoming the one who glorifies the Son. Now, that, now, this is what you need to notice is this. All of these little nuances and, and things that turn into heresy, they don't start as heresy. They're good things that are corrupted because that's what sin is. Sin is not a thing. Sin is the corruption of something. Like rust is the corruption of iron, okay? Sin is the breakdown of something that is good, okay? And so the point is these things, that doesn't mean, well, that's why I have nothing to do with the Holy Spirit. That's not the solution. Now you just went to the other side. The solution is to embrace truth. Keep your eyes focused on the gospel. Walk forward in what you know that the Bible clearly teaches and stick with that. See, truth can be, truth is the beginning and anything can become heresy if it isn't, not just if it isn't born out of a rejection of truth, but an overemphasis on the nuance of truth. Breton talked a couple months ago about how Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. And when you look at all of the Christological heresies throughout church history, all of them, all of them, all of them either overemphasize his divinity or overemphasize his humanity. And it's when they lose the fact that it's 100%, 100%, and they overemphasize, that's when it dips into heresy. And that's what Paul is essentially warning about. He continues, they are upsetting the faith of some, but God's firm foundation stands bearing the seal. The Lord knows who are his. 
Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. I'm going to try to finish real fast, guys. Just when we start to panic and we worry about our own faithfulness in our own life, this is what Paul reminds us of. He reminds us of the same thing that he unpacked in verse 13. Hear me. It's not about your faithfulness. It's about God's faithfulness. You may feel shaken, but God's firm foundation stands like an immovable rock. And on that immovable rock, there are two sentences etched into it, according to Paul. He uses this metaphor. The first is this. The Lord knows those who are his. And second is this. Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Paul's comfort is this. Look, God knows who really belongs to him. He knows whose faith is genuine. He knows whose salvation is real. And real salvation will result over time in real change in your mind, in your heart, and in your actions. That's called sanctification. But if you remember one sentence, one sentence, please remember this. Paul's argument is this. Our comfort is not the shaky ground that we know God 100% accurately in all things. Our comfort is that God knows us. Yet chose us and redeemed us. That's the comfort. It is good and noble pursuit to know God well. And I'm surely that's where Hymenaeus and Philetus began. But we believe that the confidence we have unto salvation is not in my perfect knowledge of him, because I know in part right now, but it's in his knowledge of us, his choosing of us, his divine providential work of salvation in us. That's our hope. This whole section of 2 Timothy is about gospel competency. It's about the ability to clearly communicate the gospel, to have straight talk about the gospel, not to muddy it with politics, not to muddy it with culture, not to impede it with social issues, not to get too wrapped up in nuanced theology or conspiracies that are, of course, interesting or anything else that is passing away because all of these things are a shadow and Christ is the substance. And so we focus on Christ, who is the substance. We must cut this straight. We must keep it clear. We must make it understandable so that the enemy doesn't snatch away the seed. Because in the parable of the sower, when the farmer is throwing the seed, and the seed that fell and is snatched by the birds, you know what it says? It says he snatched the seed because they did not understand. They did not understand. To do this, we must know the gospel. But it also means we must not be distracted by godless chatter, irreverent babble, pontificating nonsense that only has the illusion of advancing us to maturity, but it actually chokes out the only life-giving force, the gospel, from the church, and then it slaughters her as her body decomposes while still attached. I had a conversation this past week with an old acquaintance from 12 years ago who trained me in appropriate technologies before we went on the mission field. That was when I learned to drill wells and do biosand filters and these things. And we were catching up a little bit. And he told me, and Dave Walker was on the call as well, and he told us about a book, which I had never heard of, called Tally Ho the Fox. Anybody ever hear of that book? Tally Ho the Fox. And just, he didn't even know I was preaching on this. And he says, when you leave dogs alone in a pack, like you just get 
15 dogs, 20 dogs in a pack, they're going to fight for the alpha. They're, they're going to fight because someone's got to be in charge, right? They're, that's what they do. They fight for the alpha, even if it's playful. Eventually, they have to figure out who's going to be in charge. And so when they're left to their own accord, they're just going to fight, 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 fight. He said, but if you have a fox and you release that fox through the middle of those dogs, do you know what happens? Those dogs lock in step and they start chasing that fox with remarkable zeal and they don't care a lick who's the alpha in that moment. Because all they're doing is chasing the fox. In 2 Timothy 2, this is what we have. This is the warning. The warning is don't lose sight of the fox. Because when you lose sight of the fox, you start, you start arguing about carpet color. You start arguing about whether you should have chairs or pews. You start arguing about whether, you know, or, you know, what are the Nephilim? And you start arguing about these things that are intriguing and interesting, and they're fallen angels. But no, it's good. <laughs> no. You know, you start arguing about these things. You know, you start arguing about all of these nuances, which are fun to talk about. And you know what happens? You're at risk of losing sight of the fox. The gospel to the ends of the earth for the glory of Christ. And when we lose sight of the gospel, we always get distracted with sideways endeavors, sideways opportunity, sideways energy. And it's like driving down the strip in Vegas and there's all these flashing billboards and you're lucky you don't rear-end a car in front of you because you're distracted. See, Shirley Hymenaeus, who gets a shout-out as a heretic in two letters, right? What a... What an epitaph. Surely his understanding of the resurrection in his mind, if you said to him, why is this important? He would say, oh, this is crucial to understanding the gospel. If you don't understand this nuance about the resurrection, which I'm talking about, you're missing the whole point. Surely Hymenaeus thought that this was crucial to know because he was over-focusing and over-realizing the resurrection and losing sight of the gospel in the moment. And the truth is this, we have the capacity to do the same thing. We can have our hobby horse that distracts us from the fox. The gospel is our main thing. Keep the gospel your main thing. Keep the gospel your main thing. And if you don't know what the gospel is, please don't leave today without pulling one of us aside and letting us chat with you. Okay? I went long this break. I know you guys are working on your team. <laughs> Father God, thank you that you gave us an opportunity to still gather. Thank you that you gave us an opportunity to still communicate with a microphone. Lord, thank you that we were able to sit in the shade and hear the truth of your word. I pray, Lord, that you would help us not to get distracted by anything I said in the flesh, but to remember what the Spirit said what the word says. Help us to spur each other on, to focus on the gospel and to run that race, to toss aside every sin and every encumbrance that trips us up until we cross that finish line or you come back. We come back soon, Jesus. Amen.